hot take. Steroids, not fun. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is November 26th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hello, Sarah. What's going on? Just excited to uh, watch Georgia Tech go for the upset against Georgia this weekend. That's, uh, yeah. According to the 538 model, we have a 3% chance of winning. <laughs> so, really? Yeah. God, God only knows. Wait, three um, percent? Yeah, according to uh, Georgia, has a ninety-seven percent chance. I mean, that seems. I right. like those odds. Yeah. <laughs> and on the line from Los Angeles is five thirty-eight contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. How are you, Jeff? Did you know that our college basketball teams play each other tomorrow? I did. They're having a nice little vacation to Bermuda, right? Or where is it? Yeah, Not Bermuda, Bahamas. The Battle for Atlantis is Whoa. the yeah the turn the, the made up. I always love that. Yeah, like can we work more like mythology into the names of contrived preseason uh, college basketball tournaments that that have no real right. bearing on it the sh- season? Right. It should sound like there's something at stake. The Battle for Atlantis. That sounds way cooler than eight teams go to the Bahamas. And I'm excited about come like, home with the Vesuvius Classic, yeah. where the where the loser gets cast into a volcano. Oh yeah, nice of you, a nice trophy. <laughs> this was always my favorite week of college basketball. I mean, March Madness is great. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, uh, yeah, this is the week we all look forward to. <laughs> it is. It, I will say though, I'm with you, Sarah. It is Feast Week. Yeah, it's Feast Week, and you get to watch like so much more college basketball than you will at any point before March. Well, right. I mean, I will. Yeah. You'll probably watch more, but like, you it's, know. It, it's on like nonstop the whole week. Um, it's in, Like into the night. Yeah. Because of some of these There's weird like, time zone on. things. I remember that when, when I was in college, I got my wisdom teeth out over Thanksgiving and I just like laid on the couch in my parents' basement and watched like 24 hours a day of basketball, did nothing else, and it was amazing. It was a really fun way to spend my Thanksgiving week off. So I encourage everyone else to do that, but not with getting the wisdom teeth out. Yeah, everyone get hopped up on opioids (laughs) and watch some college basketball. Okay, maybe not that. Uh, Speaking of bad ideas, how's your fantasy football teams doing? (laughs) What share of our 16-team league what what percentage of the owners are actively caring? Is it just us three and maybe like one other person? Uh, no, I'm not in fact, I think there are people caring more than just us three. Yeah. Oh right, yeah. <laughs> just us since, two. Since for a while Jeff wasn't logged in, so he couldn't pick up new players. Sam Darnold leading my team to the playoffs, just like he could be leading the actual <laughs> Jets to the playoffs. I knew in you were going to say that. In which alternate Jeff. universe does that happen? In this universe, the one where he didn't get mono, Sarah, I guess. This universe, they just have to win out, basically, which is pretty easy, except for the game at Ravens, which is categorically not easy. It's possible, though. Yeah, we we have the uh, less than one percent, but that means it's not the dash mark on our interactive, so it means that they're not like mathematically eliminated. Uh, so they have a chance. And Jeff, to your point. If they were to win, we, we can't uh, on the interactive go over all of the games of the rest of the season. But if they were to win the next three, uh, including that win at Baltimore, they would have a 6% chance to make the playoffs. Let's go. And two of those three are the Bengals and the Dolphins. But wait, 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 wait. If they win the next three, then they get up to 6% to make the That's playoffs. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I just wanted and there, to clarify. And there's two weeks after that, but our model, our, our interactive doesn't, doesn't have show those. Doesn't that far, yeah. yeah. Okay, so there's a We chance. need a win-out option. It's Bengals, Dolphins, at Ravens on Thursday night, and then Steelers and Bills. So everything's winnable except for the Ravens. Neil, what is the what are the Jets' odds right now? Uh, less than 1%. Oh, right, you said that. So so Georgia Tech has a better chance of beating Georgia than the Jets than the do Jets of, make do the of playoffs. making the playoffs. Okay, that I just, sounds right. I just wanted to seems right. paint a full picture. But could, but could Georgia Tech beat the Jets? That's not a fair comparison. I mean, could Georgia Demarius Tech Thomas the, is could, on, uh, would be on both teams. I mean, Georgia you know. maybe could beat the Jets. I don't think Georgia Tech no, could think beat so. the Jets. Wow, that's harsh. Uh, have you guys heard that 538 has new merch available? 
I think I heard that on a previous episode. But you're not wearing it this week. I'm not, sadly. But I do endorse it. So if you're trying to find the perfect gift for someone who just can't get enough of 538, or if you yourself can't get enough of 538, and really who can, head to 538.com slash store and buy yourself or someone you, you like a new sweatshirt. It'll be great. On today's show, we'll discuss the most recent scandal to rock the Houston Astros. We'll look at a few doomsday scenarios that could plague this year's college football playoff. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The Houston Astros are back in the news with another scandal. Former Houston pitcher Mike Fires went on the record with The Athletic to accuse the Astros of sign-stealing during their 2017 championship season through the use of an outfield camera. While sign-stealing has long been a part of MLB, the use of technology to help a team decipher the signals of rival pitchers is strictly prohibited. The league was already investigating the Astros over assistant GM Brandon Taubman's controversial comments to female reporters and his subsequent firing, which we covered on an earlier episode. But MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred has confirmed that the investigation is expanding to include these allegations of sign-stealing during the 2017, 18, and 19 seasons. Here's Bill Simmons and Amanda Dobbins on the Bill Simmons podcast discussing the Astros. Counter. I kind of like it. We needed a villain. I hate the Astros now. Well, you don't dislike the players on the Astros either, right? Now I mean, we do. with a couple I think exceptions. Cheaters. I mean, I'm anti-Astros. I think this is fun. I think baseball is so freaking boring unless you're really into it and die hard or fantasy or whatever, mm-hmm. but nobody cares about other teams in baseball. You just care about your own team. And now I care about the Astros and them going down. They become the patriots of of Major League Baseball, which we needed. So, Jeff, has the scandal made the Astros baseball's villain or were they already playing that role? I think yes and yes. (laughs) So, so, uh, yes, they're the villains. Um, But I I also agree. I agree with Bill there that I think sports needs villains. I think I've said this before. I think it's always better when you have a team to hate. I think the fact that most of the nation, except for the greater Boston area, has has really, you know, rallied around the fact that there's been a clear villain in the NFL for this whole century. And it, it's made it a better sport. Is there a reason to like the Astros aside from their penchant, from my perspective, their penchant for beating the Yankees? I feel like that's the only selling point. I mean, I really like their players. I mean, I love George Springer. You could be from Houston, too. A big city, fourth biggest city in the country. I, I like that out of context. You could be from Houston. You know, it's possible. Yeah, no, that, that'd be a reason to like them. They do have likable players. They have likable players. I mean, George Springer, Carlos Correa, they, Jose Altuve. Altuve. He's so great. They got a, a wacky stadium that used to have a hill in center <laughs> That's field. That's right. You could like that if you're a child. But you could be mad that <laughs> they took it away. Okay. <laughs> if you're a child. You could be resentful that right. they took the hill yeah. out of yeah. center field. All right. Well, so Simmons also called the players themselves cheaters. Neil, is that fair? to make this particular operation work. And this is, they were using a camera, they were figuring out the signs between the catcher and the pitcher, and they were banging on a trash can or something in the dugout that would cue the hitter to know what pitch was coming, basically. That requires these likable hitters uh, to be in on it, to know the signal. So it's it's not even like a situation where when the Patriots had Spygate, for instance, there was at least some like plausible deniability on the part of the players. It could be like, well, you know, the, the Patriots coaching staff knew the, the signals and the, and the play calls that the other team was having, but maybe Tom Brady didn't. You know, you could kind of make that case for the players there. It's a little bit harder here where it requires the players to sort of be engaged with directly with the signaling operation. Okay. And that's, that's fair, but that part's not illegal. The actual sign stealing and knowing what the signs are and being told what the signs are, that's not illegal. That's not against the rules. The part that is against the rules, and the only part, is the use of an enhanced camera. Right. Every MLB team has someone watching the game looking for signs. Yeah, on TV in the clubhouse trying right, to decode exactly. it. And then they relay that to – if they crack the code, they relay that to the dugout and then someone – tells the hitters and tells whoever might be standing on second base yeah. a way to sort of signal that to the 
to the batter. Right. You exactly. Know, that's like the old one of the not the TV part, but that's kind of an old trick. Yeah, in, totally. In baseball. Yeah. So like when the Red Sox were uh, fined for sign stealing in 2017, the thing that they did wrong wasn't stealing the signs. It was using an Apple Watch to relay them, which is sort of hilarious. The thing itself is not wrong. The the use of technology is the part that's wrong. So the players, I feel like, I don't know why we would hold the players accountable for being told what pitch is coming. That has been happening for literally the entirety of baseball, right? But if they have an elaborate operation where they are using a camera and someone is behind, right behind the dugout banging on a garbage can, I mean, isn't that using technology? Well, not the banging on the garbage can part. But the guy isn't just arbitrarily banging on a garbage can when he thinks it's a changeup. I mean, he's obviously getting a feed from somewhere and using technology. Sure, but if you're getting it from, if someone's looking at TV and then telling you, that part is okay. But the problem is that is not fast enough, which is why these teams are using the high-speed cameras under ordinary circumstances, even with sort of technology from 10 years ago or broadcast technology or whatever, there's enough of a delay that you can't use it to know exactly what is coming. Even if you crack the code between the time in which the sign gets put down and the pitch comes in, I think that's the big difference. So I think that's sort of the question is like, is there an obligation for players to to not use the signals if they know that they're acquired illegally? If they don't do that, and let's be honest, no player, I think, if given that information, would not act on it. Uh, regardless of whether it's the Astros or any other player in Major League Baseball, I don't, I don't know that we can blame the players necessarily. So to your point, Sarah, it does sort of absolve them of that but it is a conundrum of ethics i think in the game as to like should it be the mastermind of the plan that gets uh penalized or the people executing it i would say the players just just don't ask too many questions right i don't know how they're getting the signals i'm just i'm just they doing don't my ask job. too many yeah. questions if you hear the garbage can that means it's a change-up you just don't know where that's that coming from. Route. I'm the coach. It's the, it's go, the changeup can. <laughs> when the changeup can speaks, we don't know. Maybe it's Oscar the Grouch in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He can sense he a changeup. He has really good eyesight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So while I think this is shady, and I also kind of love it because I love a good scandal, especially you know when it's it's a cheating scandal. It's kind of like the Flategate, except the Flategate actually didn't really help the Patriots, unlike this, which is way more serious by comparison. But part of me is also blaming the victim here a little bit. I mean, it's not like they're cracking the Enigma machine. I mean, it's like fastball is one finger and change. Like, maybe switch up the signs, guys. You know, they're clearly trying to steal them. They've already had two teams caught for this. Yeah, and that's the Nationals did during the World Series. Yes, they had an so elaborate. So yeah, obvious. they had like five different sets of signs, and and, and they, that's why they won. And that's why they won. <laughs> Teams are always suspecting each other of cheating. When the Yankees blew the whistle on the Red Sox, the Red Sox went back and accused the Yankees of also cheating. I mean, there's just a lot of like. Finger pointing. Yeah, and and the same thing happened in Spygate, for instance, where like how did the how did the Jets know that the Patriots were doing this? Because Eric Mangini, the coach of the Jets, was the one that was coordinating the stealing when he worked for the Patriots. You know, it's sort of it's so incestuous between, you know, these front offices and these teams that any advantage one team does other teams are going to do it. And then they know it's like this this mutually assured destruction that you won't say something about it. Well, that's why what's going on right now is so amazing, because the Astros were already on the hot seat. Everyone in baseball already hated them. And so now it's OK to pile on the Astros. But like, you know, Mike Fire is coming out with this now when it happened in 2017 He's been gone from the Astros for two years. He could have said something about it any time. Exactly. It's not like this was like, oh, this is brand new information. No, this is now it's just socially acceptable within the world of baseball to pile on the Astros. But every one of these teams is doing it. I am convinced of that. And I think every one of them is doing it just as egregiously as the Astros are at least close. Uh, Just a PSA for the kids out there. Baseball is and has always been rife with cheating more than really any other sport. I mean, you look at the whole steroid era and everything that's gone on with the PEDs. Guys have used corked bats. There was that one guy had the bat filled with uh, bouncy balls. 
Oh, yeah, exploded. Greg Nettles. <laughs> I mean, this is a constant presence in the sport. You, using, you know, pine tar, uh, Michael Pineda, pine tar on the hat. I mean, this goes on every season. And I think it is actually one of the more interesting parts of baseball is that there is this kind of like carte blanche to bend. The, I mean, the steroids thing is not fun um, and kind of the worst of the cheating scandals. But the other ones, you know, Mike Scott in the 1986 uh, season, I mean, scuffing the ball. I mean, come on. I mean, this is there's a deep history of cheating in this game. Electronic sign stealing goes back to at least 1900, the year 1900. There's How were they doing it back then? It's amazing. There's a... Morse code. Yeah, exactly. Mike Morse code. There's a great Jeff Passan article from, and this is back in 2017, dealing with the Red Sox and Yankees that detailed a sign stealing scheme from 1900 where there was a guy in the outfield looking at signs and somehow got uh, hit a, hit something and a, the coach was standing on a puddle and underneath it was a box of electronic wires and based, the sign like – a fastball, it would like go off once and his leg would twitch. And that's how the batter Wait, they were knew. Electrocu- mildly electrocuting the batter <laughs> to know. My- electrocuting the coach, not oh, the I'm batter. Sorry, the coach. Yeah, exactly. And his leg would twitch a certain number of times. And that's how the batter would know what pitch was coming. If that it twitches was- once, it's a fastball. <laughs> exactly. He died of electrocution. <laughs> that was in 1900. This is just a part of a long, proud tradition of stealing signs using means that are technically illegal. For for either one of you, does this change your opinion of the Astros 2017 title? I feel like it shouldn't. I do think that it's impossible to know how much it helped them. Um, but at the same time, you do think about the hallmarks of this Astros team. And one of the things was that insanely low strikeout rate without really sacrificing power. Basically, they were like, one of the only teams, if not the only team that had kind of figured that out in this era of crazy strikeouts. If that change in their strikeout rate was due to this sign stealing operation and not having superior players, superior training, you know, all the things that you're allowed to do, I I do kind of feel like it casts a uh, a cloud over what they've done the past few years just because if you think about what an advantage it is to not strike out in this particular era uh, and, and not have to sacrifice any kind of power for it, that's huge. It is interesting, though, if you watch um, some of the video that Rob Arthur and others have uncovered, uh, particularly the Danny Farquhar at bat, is that what they are, they are tipping them basically on the off speed and the sort of breaking stuff. They're, they're basically giving them a, a, a signal to take, you know, whereas often you think with sign sailing, it's, it's, you know, here's the fastball swing. So in theory, you know, that's the out pitch. You know, if you have a little O2 count, that's the swing, you know, that is out of the zone. So that, that could theoretically help their strikeout rate dramatically. I do think this like is a, fairly impactful form of cheating compared to some of the other forms we've seen in baseball and in other sports, football in particular, where I don't think any of those, you know, Patriot scandals really had an impact on anything. Yeah, certainly I don't think the deflation of the footballs uh, really mattered that much. But yeah, I could see this mattering because players like to sit fastball and react to off-speed stuff. And that's sort of one of the hallmarks of of being able to kind of work the count and, and look for, for your pitch. So anything that makes that easier and, and lets you kind of zero in on hitters pitches basically uh, and to lay off to your point jeff the 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 ones that are not conducive to getting good contact off of despite being in counts where you'd you know normally protect the plate i could see that helping what we don't know is as the amount of players who are in on it um and i think you know certain players have have even said that the they don't want to know, you know, what's coming. It throws off their whole routine and in a game of fractions of seconds and in reaction time, you know, you don't want another thing floating in your head. Like here comes a change up because I heard a garbage can and that could actually mess a hitter up. So it sort of depends on the player and, and how rampant it was. The Danny Farquaad thing is interesting to me because he heard the, the banging on the trash can or whatever. And so he changed what pitch was coming. He recognized that somehow, even though no one else did the, 
you know, umps weren't hearing it and realizing what was happening. But he did. Why? How? How did he realize that that was a, a sign stealing technique? Because other teams also do it. Because he had been on a team that had done it. So this is my thing. If everyone is doing roughly the same kind of thing, then I don't care. Then I don't care whether it helps them or not because everyone is doing something to try to help them. I think his recognizing it is evidence of rampant sign stealing. And that's not just the Astros. So once again, we're saying it's a Tour de France scenario. It is a Tour de France scenario. So, But Jeff, does it matter to you? Does it change your opinion on the 2017 title? No. If this had happened, if this story had come out in this time of the year in 2017, I think that's totally different. I think, you know, right after they won, we we discovered this. I think that's a really ugly controversy that baseball would would have had to deal with. Now, I think the, the, the cushion, the time, I mean, you know, it's obviously a very good team. I'm not going to, like, put an asterisk next to that World Series because of it. Well, neither am I. I think it's fine. <laughs> yeah, we know how you feel about this, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. You've made it clear. It's fine. So kids out there, go try to cheat. Do what you can. Don't take steroids. But anything else. (laughs) Do whatever you want to cheat. Just don't take steroids. The Jeff Foster story. (laughs) Before we move on, let's hear from this week's sponsor, ButcherBox. This week is Thanksgiving. That means family, football, and, of course, food. Last week, we discovered that Neil apparently puts gravy on his entire plate. I do, too. Including over cranberry sauce. Super weird and pretty disgusting, I I stand by it. All right. Uh, after we were done taping, I got one of the best Slack messages I've ever received from one at G Foster. Quote, do you brine? <laughs> that was it. That was it. Do you brine? <laughs> The best Sarah, slide message I've ever gotten. You know, I don't. Uh, but the question is, are you going to brine? Did you decide? Did, what are you going to do with your turkey? I think I'm going to brine. I'm going to brine. <laughs> You're taking the plunge, um, literally. I, and I don't really – I have to look up what brine means <laughs> before I do it. It seems to mean salt. Yes. <laughs> okay. That doesn't sound as daunting. You like soak it in salt water. Uh, maybe it's I like, won't. It's kind maybe of a lot of work. That's why I don't do it. Will you bang on a trash can when you turn I will. this turkey I'll upside down? The whole three hours the turkey's in the oven, I'll just be banging on a trash can. My guests will be super confused, but I'll know what I'm doing. This holiday season, don't leave the most important part of the day up to chance. With ButcherBox, you can guarantee that each and every event is a huge success. ButcherBox offers the highest quality cuts from 100% grass-fed, organic, and free-range meat with no antibiotics or hormones ever delivered right to your door. Plus, with free shipping, ButcherBox is the most convenient way to get meat the way it's meant to be. Natural, fresh, and delicious. No more panicking that the grocery store will run out of whatever you need. And to make things better, don't miss out on their amazing Black Friday deal. Sign up now and get eight free steaks, plus $20 off your first box by going to butcherbox.com takedown. This offer won't last long, so hurry to butcherbox.com takedown to take advantage. That's butcherbox.com slash takedown. Before Oregon's loss on Saturday night, the college football playoff picture was in an eerily stable place. LSU at number one, Ohio State at number two, and Clemson at number three. The number four spot was the interesting one, but it seemed a safe bet to go to either Georgia or the winner of the Pac-12 championship between Utah and Oregon, assuming none of them lost before them. With Oregon out of the picture now, we've got a wider field vying for that fourth seed. Georgia and Utah are still in contention, but so is Oklahoma. And don't look now, but Alabama is back in the mix, even without quarterback Tua Tungaviola. Does Bama really have a shot? Here's Kirk Herbstreet on ESPN's College Football Playoff Top 25 on Alabama's chances. I personally felt whether with with Tua or without Tua, Alabama eventually, after the final games are played, would be on the outside looking in. I don't think this is that Bama team that you just say on the eye test, oh, they're much better than everybody else. Even with Tua, I felt that because of how young they are in defense without Dylan Moses. They just don't feel that way, and they don't have the resumes. Neil, you've done some work mapping out different scenarios that could play out in the college football playoffs. Do you agree with Kirk that Alabama doesn't have a chance this year? No, I, I don't agree with that. I think Alabama has a chance if we're talking about that. I mean, our model right now gives Alabama a 13% chance of making the playoff. And that's not overly high. I mean, it puts them behind not just the top four, but we also have Oklahoma and Utah 
being higher, uh, and and that a lot of that has to do with the potential of you know winning a conference championship. Uh, whereas obviously with Alabama, that's out the window. But there are a lot of situations that could create chaos and kind of put Alabama into the mix. I'm not saying that they would still be odds-on favorites to make the playoff, but you can have situations where, for instance, they could beat Auburn. They're going to have to beat Auburn to kind of, you know, make this possible. But the thing that seems to create the most chaos in the SEC from there on would be then Georgia beating LSU. And then all of a sudden, you've got Georgia might be a de facto lock at that point, but now you're looking at LSU and, you know, they have a head to head over Alabama, but they also have a loss. Do you hold the loss against them in the conference championship? Uh, and so under that circumstance, we would give LSU and Alabama an equal 33% chance of making the playoff in, in that particular situation. Oklahoma also has one loss if, if they or Baylor, whoever wins out in that particular situation, could also factor in and create this logjam of these one-loss teams, and one of them is Alabama, and we've seen Alabama before have a situation where they beat Auburn and then just kind of sat back and waited to see what would happen, and with one loss and a bunch of other stuff happening in the um, championship weekend, they were able to sneak in. So never doubt the ability of Alabama to sneak into the college football playoff. I know. I think that's why I'm like, yes, of course they have a chance. They're Alabama. They, yes, they have a loss, but. And yes, they don't have their starting quarterback. Sure. And I think actually that's interesting too. With Tua out, does that give the, the committee kind of cover? Because I think, I think that helps the committee say, well, no, they're not going to play because they're not the best team because they're missing their quarterback. But otherwise, I think it'd be really tough because their only loss is against. The best team in the country. So, yeah, I don't know. It seems hard to me to imagine Alabama just being cast aside. Jeff, what about those top three picks right now? LSU, Ohio State, and Clemson. At the moment, they're seen as virtual locks. What would have to happen for their pathways to be altered? They're each different. I I think LSU is the most complicated, which Neil alluded to. I think Clemson's fairly simple because of the weakness of the ACC and the sort of weakness of the ACC title game, uh, Virginia, Virginia Tech, if they lose either that game or they lose to South Carolina, they're, I, they're not going to make it because their just resume is not strong enough. They really haven't played anyone. So they sort of have to be winless. Um, with the case of Ohio State, if they were to lose to Michigan and then beat Minnesota, Wisconsin, I think they're pretty safe. I think they're they're the thing they need to not do is lose to Michigan and then lose to Wisconsin or Minnesota. Then they're obviously gone. Um, LSU's the tricky one. I mean, it, that that's when it sort of comes down to like style points and, and what was the game like. If if they lose in the last second to Georgia in the SEC championship, that, that that's probably where we might get two SEC teams. In that case, which will be to the detriment of a, a team like Utah or Oklahoma, I think generally I, I feel like the committee does not want two teams from the same conference, even though we see it all the time. If LSU ends up losing, their only loss would be to Georgia, and they would have the, the win over Alabama on their resume, and yet still... Our model, which is based on kind of past patterns by the committee and also just college football tradition in general, if the following happens, so Alabama beats Auburn, LSU loses the SEC title game to Georgia and finishes with only one loss, we would say Georgia would have a 99% chance of making the playoff and that LSU would only have a 42% chance of making the playoff. Uh, And so your most likely playoff teams would be Georgia, Clemson, Ohio State. And then it would be kind of tough to choose between do you take LSU with a loss? Do you take Alabama with a loss? Do you take either Baylor or Oklahoma, whoever kind of emerges from that with one loss? Uh, and then there's the wild card of, say, Minnesota wins out, including beating Ohio State in the Big Ten title game. What do you do with them? They only have one loss, and all of a sudden they have this great resume win over the Buckeyes. And we haven't even talked about Utah yet. So there's like, I love these cases where there are these one-loss teams. The other tricky one, you mentioned Minnesota, but Wisconsin, I I feel like I, I, 
they're very much in play here also because if they beat Minnesota and then they beat Ohio State, that would mean they beat Ohio State, Michigan, Minnesota, and Iowa. They would four wins over over ranked top 25 teams and two losses and a Big Ten title. That That's a pretty good case too. But again, I think they would need some help. Yeah, let's say Ohio State uh, beats Michigan, sorry, uh, and then Wisconsin beats both Minnesota and then Ohio State. We Our model would actually have Wisconsin at 48% to make the playoff higher than Ohio State at 30%, uh, even though Wisconsin would have two losses and Ohio State would only have one loss. Now, there is the possibility in our model, this has kind of loomed over it all season, this idea that are we overvaluing conference championships? It's still very unclear in the history of the playoff uh, since they put it in in 2014 how much premium they put on winning a uh, power conference championship. Sometimes it seems like a lot. Sometimes it seems like not that much, like in that Alabama uh, season where where they didn't even play for the conference championship and they were able to uh, make it in. Have we ever seen a case of a team making the playoff directly after losing their conference championship game? If that's happened, it's been really rare. I'm trying to remember whether that's happened. I don't think at it's ever any happened. Point. So they, in a way, they are consistent about treating those games as like you said, Jeff, de facto play-in games for the the college football playoff, the way we followed the season so far, if LSU were to lose to Georgia in the SEC title game and be uh, 12-1, and or if Ohio State were to lose to either Minnesota or Wisconsin in the Big Ten title game and also be 12-1, and it seems so weird to, to kind of leave off one or both of those teams uh, under that circumstance after how much they've dominated this season and yet put in a team like Clemson, assuming that they kind of cruise to undefeated, which we give a very high uh, chance of happening. Uh, right now we say there's an 81% chance they went out, including the ACC title game. It seems weird. Well, this is the problem, right? The playoff committee would love if there were four undefeated conference champions and they just make the playoff and it's all clean and they can, you know, wipe their hands of it and it's no problem. But that never happens and it's never going to happen. And there will always be this glut of one loss teams and, and, and what they do with them is, is this huge problem. Can we make the argument right now that the current system is actually rewarding the best teams that we have? the four best teams in the playoff. And, I mean, is that even what the committee really wants? It doesn't really seem like it, or Georgia would have made it last year. It's a definitely a better system than we had for a lot, for a lot of years. <laughs> yeah. Although that's uh, not saying much. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, it was a really bad system for a while. Um, and then we had the BCS, which was a bad system, but a better system. A better, now bad we have a little system. bit better system. So, I, I mean, I think everyone admits that an 18 playoff would be much better. I mean, I think that you would get a, a non power five team in there, so you would solve this whole UCF uh, nonsense. You know, we wouldn't have a repeat of that. You'd get one in there um, as the eight seed. Um, so, in some ways, that's great because then it's more like the college basketball tournament where really any team has a chance. You're not, you know, hindered by what conference you are in and, what, and what's, you know, who's on your schedule. Yeah. And, and one of the questions is probably like, where do we want to set the cutoff where it's unacceptable for this type of team to not make the playoff? Because right now, and this is off of some research that our boss Nate Silver did uh, over the BCS era, uh, but I think it still holds up today, where he looked at, okay, say there was a playoff system in place over that time of two, four, six, eight, or eight with conference champions getting automatic bids. And then he looked at the rate that certain classifications of teams made the playoffs. So we're talking undefeated major conference champions. 90% of those would make a two-team playoff and 100% of them would make a four-team playoff because there just aren't that many of those. So we're not really worried about losing those teams no matter how large the playoff is. But if we're talking one-loss major conference champions in a four-team playoff, only 72% of that type of team makes it. In an eight-team playoff, 97% of those teams make it. That's, I think, would be an argument for an eight-team playoff is one-loss major conference champions 
probably deserve to make some kind of playoff system at the end of the year. Then you can move on and say one loss major conference non-champion. So this is like the Alabama case or, you know, say LSU loses in the uh, SEC title game. In a four-team playoff, only 47% of those teams make the playoff. So it's basically a coin flip, and that's what we've seen in the in the playoff years as to whether that type of team will be in or will be out. Under an eight-team playoff, 97% of one-loss major conference non-champions make the playoff. I think that is another argument in favor of the 18 playoff because those types of teams could be the best team in the country. They have at least an argument, most likely, and they should almost always be included. Then you get into the things like the undefeated minor conference teams, twenty, you know, your UCF-type teams. 25% of them make it in a four-team playoff, which I think is actually a little bit high in retrospect. Uh, 50% of them make it in an eight-team playoff. But I don't know that we're necessarily uh, as worried about half of those teams not making the playoff. Right. I mean, we have a setup where we have five power conferences and four spots in the playoffs. It already it's doesn't just make bad. sense. Yeah, it's bad on its face. So, all right, who are your top four? Who do you think are making the playoffs? Should I start? Yeah, I think you should. Okay. I think Clemson is a lock. Um, that seems like an easy call. Ohio State. Uh, and then I'm going to go with, gosh, it's a tough call in the SEC because this year, right now, we say it's likely that two SEC teams will make it. The only way that happens is if Georgia wins over LSU and then they put LSU in. But other things also have to happen. And I I just feel like there's too many moving parts and it seems more likely that they would put in – let's say Georgia does win. Then Georgia and Oklahoma are the other two. So those would be my my four. What about you, Jeff? I feel like, again, I have to mix it up a little bit Um, after old Chalky Neal – that wasn't chalky. I went against the model. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Fine. Um, Stop the presses. <laughs> I think Ohio State is in. I think Clemson's in. I'll LSU. I'm going to go with Utah as my fourth, just because Utah's been absolutely decimating teams. They look really strong, super efficient, good defense. And if we rewind the tape, I think I did call out Utah as a sleeper. So I oh, yeah. You're right, Jeff. Now. And I, you know what? On the West Coast, the Pac-12 needs a little love. They, they're they just always an afterthought in this thing lately. So, All right. Okay. So I'm going to go with Clemson, Ohio State. I think that Oklahoma is going to lose to Baylor in the Big 12 title game. They okay. almost lost to Baylor when they played uh, the other day. I think Utah is going to lose to Oregon in the Pac-12 title game. Wow. So they're out. I think that Georgia is going to beat LSU in the SEC title game. So Georgia will be in. And then the committee will have to decide between an LSU that just lost in the title in the conference title game and an Alabama that LSU beat. And I want to see that decision. I want to see them say to Alabama, no, you're not in it. We're taking LSU, even though it seems like the losers of those conference games won't get in. And I don't know which one of those will take. <laughs> they should take LSU, but I don't know if they will. So that's what I think is going to happen. I'm rooting for the chaos. I want to I want to see the the committee have to make these difficult decisions because that's the only way I think we're going to change the the playoff system. At 5:38, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, start us off. Sure. So I was uh, watching a Michigan State basketball game the other day, and I noticed that they have a player on their team named Rocket Watts. His actual name is Mark Watts. But a lot of places uh, online, when you kind of look him up, including his own Wikipedia page, refer to him just directly as Rocket Watts. So that made me sort of think to myself, like, I haven't seen one of these players where a nickname effectively replaces their first name in a little bit of a while. We all remember guys from the kind of classic era of nicknames, your your Magic Johnsons, your Penny Hardaways, your Fat Leavers, uh, <laughs> you know, Doc Rivers, Tree Rollins, these guys where their first name was effectively replaced by a nickname. And so 
uh, I was talking to Sarah about this and thinking, like, can we compile a list of these nicknames that effectively replaced a player's first name? And can we also see whether there have been ones more recent in the manner of a Rocket Watts or were they all really concentrated during a uh, very particular period of time? So I looked at basketball and it is true that the heyday of the, like, single name, uh, the nickname replacing your first name was basically for players who were born between maybe the late 50s, early 60s, and sometime in the 80s. Penny Hardaway was born in 1971. Magic Johnson was born in 1959. Rip Hamilton, this is another good one, uh, basically replaced his first name. 1978, Popeye Jones, 1970. You're seeing this trend of, of guys with these nicknames played basketball during the 80s, the 90s, uh, uh, and then not so much for players since then. There's a few. Booby Gibson, I, I felt like that was had kind of replaced uh, his yeah. first name. Daniel Gibson, of course, he was born in 1986. Big Baby Davis, uh, I feel like that uh, sort of replaced Glenn or at least was about 50-50 in terms of the usage uh, for him. He was born in 1986 as well. But really, we we saw the end of that era basically and until Mar- Rocket Watts. Uh, he was born in 2000 uh, and he he could single-handedly bring back this trend. But Sarah, you looked at baseball for this and, and you found a little bit of a different I did. thing. Yeah, there were a couple in the like 50s and 60s, people born in the 50s and 60s with nicknames like Flash Gordon, Goose Gossage. But most of the players with like the classic baseball nicknames were born in like the 1800s or the super early 1900s. Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, obviously. 1895. The, yeah. Yogi Berra, I... So I learned yesterday that Yogi was not his actual name. I didn't know that. His name was actually Lawrence, which so you can see why he wanted to go by something else. Sure. <laughs> he could have gone by Larry Barra. He could have. <laughs> Think I, of how much worse of a player he would be. I know. Be. Yeah. He I'm would glad, be way worse for I'm that. so glad he uh, he went with Yogi. Um, Satchel Paige. Uh, Satchel was not his actual first name. It was Leroy. That is a special special to me. I named my first cat Satchel. Aww. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Catfish Hunter. Um, Pee Wee Reese. The only really recent example, they're the most recent example that I could find was Pudge Rodriguez. And he I don't think he liked that nickname. I don't think he was like, yay, they're calling me Pudge. I was think it a nod to Carlton Fisk as both being catchers? I, think, well, I kind yeah, of assumed yeah. that. But still, it's not like super nice. And also, Pudge didn't really replace Carlton Fisk's name. I mean, it was his nickname, but it didn't like – we didn't stop calling him Carlton. Yeah. Why um, does he get to be Carlton? I still have to be Pudge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although uh, you you also found a name that did not replace this guy's uh, – a nickname that did not replace this guy's name, but – is one of the most amazing things that we found during our descent. Lou Gehrig had a cup had a bunch of nicknames. The it Iron turns Horse. Out. Mm-hmm. There's a there is a website um, <laughs> called More Gehrig, which everyone needs more Gehrig in their lives. Yeah, the the normal level of Gehrig Not was enough. insufficient. No, ramp up the level of Gehrig. One of Lou Gehrig's nicknames was Biscuit Pants. Which is amazing. What does that What does that mean? So, according to the Moore Gehrig website, he was called Biscuit Pants because of his baggy pants over thick legs and a broad back porch. Wow. So, I think they were saying he had a big butt. Isn't that just like baseball player? <laughs> yeah, like I, know, I feel like, like most baseball players dude. could be yeah. biscuit pants. Biscuit pants. Biscuit that, pants. We need to bring easy. that back. Yeah, I know, right? Are you counting guys who they had the nickname like way, way back in the day through all their competitive years? Like someone like Scooter Gannett or Homer Bailey where those aren't their real names. Homer but- Bailey's name is not Homer? I think it's David Bailey. Really? See, this is. They were like, "We're gonna, you're gonna give up a lot of homers when you reach the pros." So. <laughs> yeah, what an unfortunate. Oh yeah, David Dewitt Bailey. So huh. see, we got a couple examples there. Ryan Joseph Gannett Scooter. There's some uh, Julio Jones in the NFL is Quintoris Jones, and I think he's just always been Julio. And then famously, Tiger Woods is Eldrick Woods. Right. Right. So, right. I mean, but these are all examples. I think everything I've just said is examples where you know this is these names were adopted at childhood. Yeah, and and you see some of these like you know Spud Webb also um, in basketball, Blue Edwards. 
Uh, uh, Blue Edwards is is a great one because the uh, the origin of his nickname, I believe, was that he was like choking one time as a child and his and his face turned blue, and they called him Blue as a result of that. His whole life. I love Muggsy Bogues because it's both a childhood nickname and a basketball related nickname. He was playing on a, a court as like a nine year old or something, and kept. Um, uh, mugging the other players of the ball and the t- the players were were like stop mugging me and then they called it, they started calling him mugs <laughs> and he apparently hated it at first but then adopted it and yeah. I, that one's really great then you have chipper jones who hated hated being called larry yes and that's sent and just gave the mets a great chant right off the bat <laughs> if you let people know that you hate your either your nickname or your given name, whichever one, yeah, the opponents will really no, go to town on it. Can't say that out loud, guys. So, I do. I like my yeah. favorite current one is um, my boy Mitch Trubisky, uh, who led me to fantasy greatness this week. He did have twenty fantasy points. Nice. I love that he is. He has a nickname of Biscuit or like Mister Biscuit. True Biscuit. <laughs> and that was a college thing. And he told a reporter that. Never do that, guys. Yeah. That's gonna that's gonna be a thing. Then um, our colleague Josh Hermsmeyer refers to him as Biscuit at every opportunity, at in the middle of stories, at all the time. But and it's it, great. Is he Biscuit Pants? No, he's yeah, not Biscuit no, Pants. Just, just Biscuit. I I think we just came up with a Mitch Trubisky nickname. So the Bears need to do something about Biscuit Pants at quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> and yet now that is how he shall be known. Do you remember Neil when Rock Reigns? Started appearing on baseball cards instead of Tim. I Raines. don't. I don't I was remember very that. Confused by that as a child, it was sort of late into Tim Raines' career. Like we really knew him as Tim Raines, and then all of a sudden, tops. I forget what year, but you can look it up. Rock Raines. It was on the card, and I was like, oh, I guess, I guess, I guess we call him Rock. And now. I think that's against the rules of the the nickname replacing the first name. You can't do that mid career, late career. It has to be from the very beginning. It has to be like Cadillac Williams in in football. He was always known as Cadillac. Yeah, no, no, no one even what knew his what his first name was. Name mm-hmm. was. Yep. Uh, if if the if the first name even if you don't like it becomes established in any way, shape, or form. It it kind of disqualifies you from having the the nickname replace the first name, I feel like. I, yeah, I agree with that. I think that's right. The rookie who I had a couple TDs last night on uh, Baltimore. Hollywood, Hollywood Brown. Brown that, th- uh, that feels like that's got staying power. I like power that, yeah. Because I feel like the announcers and everyone just embraced yeah. it right from that's, the beginning. Maybe that's the, the key. You got to get somebody – Some you got to have a hype man who's going to say your name, your nickname over and over for it to stick. And so, Hollywood is a really a cool nickname. name. In the great tradition of Hollywood Henderson, that was another one that uh, – a uh, football player that came up in our research, real name Thomas. But I do feel like we are seeing sort of uh, a reduction in the sort of like nicknames replacing your your given name which had been so common in this era of like the 80s and the 90s and i was wondering why that might be i know that in the 2000s we sort of went into this era of lazy nicknaming like uh dwayne wade became d wade tracy mcgrady became t mac alan iverson was just ai i know is the answer but i feel like people used ai more for him which is a shame because the answer is actually a pretty good nickname and ai is just literally his initials so i was wondering whether that era sort of you know caused the the nickname replacing the first name to die down are we in an era where it's coming back you know uh are are we seeing i've feel like we're seeing maybe more creative nicknames. Uh, there's certainly been a trend on Basketball Reference, which I played some small role in, but uh, they, they've kind of taken it and run with it since I was there, of just including literally any time any players referred to by anything in like a Reddit thread, an SB Nation comment section, just on Twitter, like any nickname, just no matter how obscure, they will list it on a player's basketball reference page. And so are we now in sort of the age of the the micro nickname, the, the niche nickname, uh, where a player is not going to be – it'll never replace their first name in the same way that a Magic Johnson uh, or, or someone like that from a previous era. But now we've kind of reached sort of this uh, this equilibrium point where the nicknames are less lazy but they're also less commonly used. I don't know. What do you guys think? Maybe it has something to do with – you know, we t- we've talked a lot on this podcast about – um, player agency and player controls. So if you want your nickname to be Hollywood, 
maybe you can make that happen now. And maybe more guys are embracing that and like not allowing someone to stick them with a nickname they don't like, but but embracing a nickname they want. Be the change and <laughs> nicknames that you <laughs> – I don't even know how the phrase goes. No, <laughs> not, not like that. <laughs> you have to do it at the beginning. You can't pull rock range no. and try to do it in the, no. in the end of your career. I also think if you have a good name already, you don't need the nickname. Grover Cleveland Alexander should not have ever tried to go by Pete. Your name is Grover Cleveland. Embrace that. Yeah. Don't don't try to he change that. He wasn't up. a fan of the, the president. I right the now, if your name president. is Larry Jones, Chipper seems like a better a better option. And that was a recurring theme in a lot of these. Just to bring it back to Rocket Watts, Mark Watts, super boring name. It's not a fun name. Uh, and and you see that with like Richard Hamilton, Ronald Jones, Popeye Jones, William Henry Parker. Better known as Smush Parker. Yeah, Smush. Uh, way better. <laughs> yeah. So I do feel like the boringness of the original name is usually positively correlated with your tendency to get the uh, the replacing name. Now, I'll say Penny Hardaway is, a, is an exception to that because Anfernee is a really fun first yeah, name. It might be a little tough to pronounce, though. Maybe Penny. Yeah, and it's confusing. It sort of sounds like Anthony. That's true. Yeah, maybe confusion is part of it, too. I think we should um, I think we should take time out of whatever else job stuff we have to do and make a chart of correlation between boringness of boringness original of name. name and coolness of nickname. Does, how does that relate to our Monet scores? <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to dig into that. One thing I noticed on Football Reference, which this reminds me of, is that, you know, NFL quarterbacks generally, there's not a lot of nicknames. And, you know, I think to reach, uh, to be a level of, of familiarity, to reach your pro football reference profile, it has to be pretty common. You don't see that many. But Tom Brady, if you go to his football reference page, has like seven nicknames up there and i don't even i haven't even heard of all these it says tom brady tb12 yeah. tom terrific yeah. touchdown tom goat the pharaoh the Goat's, pharaoh goat is just lazy like that come on comeback that, kid or sir <laughs> so that's sir. sir sir tom of brady Seven nicknames on football reference. I could barely find another player with like one. I think. I mean, Tom Brady is really old, so I guess if you get, you know, that's a nickname every. But Peyton Manning just had the sheriff. I don't really remember that being a common (laughs) nickname for Peyton Manning. Yeah, you you can't add things like that later. Although it would have been great if Tom Brady from the beginning had just been Pharaoh Brady. (laughs) Yeah. What? (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think I think this is a good spot to end this rabbit hole and this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back. In your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate the show. It really does help other people discover us. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.